Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You may have some in your pocket right now, or maybe in your car's cup holder for the next time you grab some drive through Nickels, dimes, quarters, that peso from your last vacation, you name it. But there's one Canadian coin that almost 20 years ago captured the world's attention. For many, that one coin was the ultimate symbol of Lady Fortune even though the coin itself didn't have much monetary value. I'm talking about the loonie and how one became the token of good luck for Team Canada. I'm journalist Erica Vella, and today we go back to 2002 and the Salt Lake City Olympics to find out how the lore of the loonie started. Where is it now? Did this tradition or superstition continue? This is Global News What Happened to The Lucky Looney. It's gold in color, made of orient bronze. On the face is Queen Elizabeth II, and on the flip side, there's a common loon swimming in water. And that's why the coin has been nicknamed the Looney. It was brought into circulation back in 1987, replacing the dollar bill. Today marked the official debut of Canada's new dollar coin. Copper, nickel, and tin 11-sided coin was distributed for the first time by banks, and it took some consumers by surprise. Comments range from a welcome change from old money to concerns about how heavy it was. In Canada, the $1 coin won't get you much these days, and it will get you even less in the U.S. It's worth about 83 U.S. cents. But in 2002, one loony became priceless in Canada's journey to winning gold at the Winter Olympics. Frozen at center ice in Salt Lake City's e-center. It was secretly planted there by a Canadian. Trent Evans has always had a love for hockey. He's from Edmonton and a huge Oilers fan. As a hockey player growing up, I was always curious about the ice. Curious about how thick it was and wondering about the brightly painted lines that marked the spot where the teams face off like gladiators on ice the curiosity eventually pushed him into an unusual career. In the early 80s, as a rink rat, I was responsible for moving the nets out of the way of the Zamboni and helping the Zamboni driver uh, with some of the off-ice and on-ice activities as uh, during the Oilers games. So gained some experience through the 80s as a rink rat helping the Zamboni driver. But in 1990, I became the Zamboni driver. So I was... Uh, involved in making of the ice and maintaining the ice. He began making ice in Edmonton for Oilers games. We would make the ice from scratch, so basically from the concrete surface, the painting of the surface, and then flooding the ice and maintaining the ice uh, 
A lot of that is done with the Zamboni. So driving the Zamboni is a big part of the ice making process and keeping it maintained at three quarters or an inch of ice, depending on the area. So clean, crisp, bright ice so that uh, the logos could be seen. And with some guidance from friend Dan Craig, Trent turned ice making into a science. The water temperature was very important. The soft water that we use, um, also very important. Maintenance um, was critical and making sure that the ice plant was working most efficiently and maintaining three quarters of an inch or an inch of ice and not two inches of ice where that playing surface now is is not the ideal temperature for skates to cut into the ice and, and not be too chippy or not that the air temperature above the ice was too warm, that it was, um, you know, the puck would bounce around. So we and Dan Craig put into science uh, all of those variables that just help to maintain a great surface so that we could have an optimal game played on that surface that the puck wasn't bouncing around and that uh, the players and the speed of the game was uh, at its optimum level. Trent said it was Dan Craig who would eventually lead him to the pinnacle of athleticism, the Olympic Games. Dan was working as an ice master for the NHL and Olympics and would have to choose 16 ice makers and experts from the NHL to go to Salt Lake City for the 2002 Winter Games. Trent was one of them. It was pretty cool. And my kids, uh, younger at that time, and uh, uh, to share it with the family and and know that I'd be um, away from home for a number of weeks and I didn't know at the time of receiving the letter what level of commitment it would be, but just to be um, recognized on an international level and with uh, 30 or thereabouts teams in 2001 NHL teams, and you've got multiple Zamboni drivers. So to be selected as one of 16 when there's arguably, you could say, 120 Zamboni drivers from around the league, it was pretty cool. So Um, It was kind of that recognition of what I had done in the past with ice making and, um, you know, to really care about the the quality of ice and to be part of the Edmonton team. So it was was pretty cool to be recognized as, as one of 16. Hockey has always been known as Canada's sport. But before 2002, the men's Canadian hockey team hadn't won a gold medal since 1952. The women's hockey team had won silver in 1998, which was the first year a women's hockey tournament was held at the Olympics. I was curious about this almost 50-year drought of the men's team, so I turned to sports historian and author Eric Zweig. For the rest of the 50s and into the 60s, the, the, the Soviet Union you know, took over men's hockey, really. And, and Europeans, generally speaking, because... Because the difference being that, you know, professionals weren't allowed in Olympic hockey in those days. In Europe, in the Soviet Union specifically, I mean, the players who played were playing hockey year round, were, were grown men who, who were, for all intents and purposes, except that they weren't being paid to play hockey, professional hockey players. They were mostly soldiers in the, in the Red Army, and, but their job was to be hockey players. Whereas Canada 
is relying on the same sort of amateur teams they've been relying on since international hockey really got started in the 20s. In the 1960s, they are specifically, you know, a Canadian national team program, but it's all basically college-aged players who aren't aren't prioritizing a professional career above an education, and and hockey was a good way to get it. So they weren't they weren't the best hockey players our country could produce, whereas the Russians and the Swedes and the Czechs were the best hockey players their country could produce. Eric said in 1988, some NHL players started trickling in and playing for Team Canada in the Olympics. But it wasn't until 10 years later, in 1998, that full participation from NHL players happened. The NHL shut down its season for a few weeks so that everybody could in the NHL could, could represent their countries in the Olympics, which, of course, you know, played to the advantage of Canada and the United States. So I think going into 98, People really saw Canada and the U.S. as the, the favorites for, for gold or gold and silver, and they didn't. I mean, the, the Canadians got knocked off. Uh, they, they ended up playing in the bronze medal game and losing. Uh, the Americans didn't even get that far. Uh, the Czechs won for the first time ever, beating Russia in the gold medal game. So 2002, I think people are hopeful that the Canadian team can win. The 2002 men's and women's Canadian hockey teams were packed with star power. The women's team had players like Caroline Ouellette, Danielle Goyette, Kim St. Pierre, and of course, Haley Wickenheiser. The men's team had soon to be legends like Joe Sackick, Eric Lindros, Jerome Aginla, and Mario Lemieux. The men's head coaching staff included Pat Quinn, and the great one, Wayne Gretzky, was the executive director of the team. Going in in 2002, what was the thinking? I mean, I think the thinking was certainly they can win. You know, they are as good as anybody there. This is a team that should be able to win this. But there would be some tough competition along the way. A gold wasn't guaranteed. On February 3rd, with the eyes of the world watching, Trent arrived in Utah for the 19th Winter Olympic Games. Arriving in Salt Lake City, it was um, pretty cool, and I've never been a volunteer at an event of this magnitude. So uh, shortly after arriving, they took us through a protocol area where we received all our, our uniform, and that was really cool And to receive the uniform, and it was everything from jacket to shirt to pants and full full outfit of uh, uniform and just to see the level of sponsorship within that area and you know call it snack food and everything that would be available to myself as a volunteer including a, a volunteer MasterCard that had a per diem loaded up so it was pretty excited to I was pretty excited to see at what level of professional welcome they had um, when I landed the next day after landing we arrived at the center and ready to make the ice from start to finish at the center. Trent said he was overcome with excitement and nerves. When he left Alberta, he was working as a supervisor for the maintenance team that cared for the ice during Oilers games, team practices, and other activities. But he hadn't driven an ice resurfacing machine in recent years. Now he would be back on the saddle, only this time driving in front of an international audience. I was a little bit nervous. I would say about, geez, I'm going to be driving the Zamboni again. But um, thinking it's like riding a bicycle, I, I I knew I was confident. But uh, 
driving on an international level and at the Olympics, a uh, different level of nerves, I would say, than driving uh, intermissions at the Oiler Games. So um, it was pretty cool, not knowing what I was uh, getting into, though. When Trent got into the e-center, work was already underway to get the arena prepped. In just a few days, there would be preliminary games taking place and a lot had to be done. North American hockey rinks are 61 meters or 200 feet long and 26 meters or 85 feet wide. But the Olympic surface is bigger. They had converted the arena to a 200 by 100 uh, space. So it was interesting to see how that had evolved um, into the moving of the boards on the width, so increasing that width. So it was uh, was nice to see that that was uh, well underway and um, basically the boards were ready for us to, to start painting and, and building the ice. With each Olympic game comes a new motto, a new emblem. In 2002, the motto was light the fire within and the emblem was a snowflake that was made up of three separate sections a yellow top section symbolizing the Olympic flame, an orange center section symbolizing the ancient weaving styles native to Utah, and a bluish-purple bottom section, which symbolized snow-capped mountains. And the point at the center where they all meet gave the logo the appearance of a sunrise. For Trent, laying down this logo was going to be a challenge. The NHL would be used to painting our NHL home team logo at center ice, whereas at the Olympics, there's obviously the Olympic uh, logo. So making the ice the first day and identifying with where center was and identifying with where the logo was um, and, and placement of the logo, all of those elements took a little more time than what uh, obviously we'd be used to. Wanting everything to be perfect, he turned to his friend Dan Craig on that first day for some guidance. And his advice sparked the flames of destiny. In the NHL, we're, we're used to the traditional 12-inch diameter blue dot. So when I asked Dan Craig what they did in the other facilities, he, he said to me, he said, Trent, they just made a splotch of paint in yellow or orange about the size of a loony. And that, that really tipped off something for me. And when I say yellow or orange, yellow or orange were both the colors in the Salt Lake uh, logo, the crystal logo of the Olympics. So as soon as he said that, I'm thinking, oh, I, I have to put a loony. But the nervousness of working out there with other people, I, I dipped my hand in my change and I, I found a dime. So I placed, because we, we needed to mark center ice, uh, everything basically works off of center uh, when you're painting the ice, but uh, place the dime that first day. And um, uh, with the placing of the dime, we had center ice marked and we we had continued to flood over top or seal that that first day, all of the paint markings as well as sealing the dime into center ice. The thought of having a loony at center ice stayed with Trent overnight. That first night and discussing with my roommate at the time, Duncan Murray, who was also from Edmonton and a Zamboni driver, the silver of the dime just didn't make as much sense as the gold of the loony. So uh, that night and before the next morning, I had loony in hand. And and uh, my goal that second day of making the ice was to, to place, as I did, the loony over top of the dime. 
So there was a little bit of ice in between the um, the dime, the first day of making the ice, and the loony, the second day of making the ice. And uh, on that second day making the ice, we we flooded over top of the surface. That ice would see the best hockey players from around the globe face off and battle for gold. And now it had a little piece of Canada in it. Trent mused about his secret for a little while and didn't know if he should share it. I did tell um, Dan Craig uh, what I had done and that I had put a loony and, you know, it was, okay, uh, that's great that you've put a loony, Trent, but uh, uh, I think we all felt a little bit nervous about it and that's why we told uh, the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and this young man, that uh, Nate Anderson, that Dan Craig and I reported to Uh, that represented the Olympics, he actually told us to take it out. Instead of taking it out, Trent had another idea. I um, melted the ice above the loony, and I put the splotch of paint over top of the loony. Um, Can't remember if I used yellow or orange, but basically the color of the logo. And so you couldn't see that it was actually a loony. Painting that splotch of paint over the loony, it was now hidden underneath that paint. So... The only way somebody could ever tell that it was an actual loony would be to either melt the ice and the paint over top or to do a comparison of the thickness of the ice over top of the loony compared to the thickness of the ice around the loony. So um, that first week I ended covering up the loony. So I would say yes, a little bit nervous about the fact that it was in there, but um, I ended up covering it. While Trent nervously awaited the start of the Olympic hockey tournament, players and fans attended the opening ceremonies. And on the first day of competition, on February 9th, 2002, Slovakia and Germany hit the ice for the preliminary round of play. Canada, the U.S., as well as other top hockey countries were given direct entry into the first round. Canada wouldn't see action until February 15th. And sports historian Eric Zweig said the men's team had a bit of a rocky start. The first round, they played three games in the first round. Everybody, I mean, it was sort of round robin that didn't eliminate anybody. It was just for seeding. So Canada played Sweden and lost 5-2. It was a stunning loss. And then they, they really didn't look good. I mean, Sweden beat them pretty handily in that first game. Uh, that's why Pat Quinn was coaching the team then, and he was the coach of the Maple Leafs, and he played Curtis Joseph, who was the Leafs goalie in the first game. And then Quinn made the switch to Martin Brodeur, who, who you know, statistically is the greatest goalie in the history of hockey, you know, way more wins than anybody else. They hadn't yet reached that point. They played Germany and won 3-2, and then they played the Czech Republic and tied them 3-3. In the quarterfinals, they played Finland. But even in the playoffs, you know, Canada barely gets by Finland in the quarterfinal. Canada made it to the semifinals and they would battle Belarus, who had defeated Sweden in a shocking loss. The win against Belarus was a defining moment in the tournament for Canada. The Canadians beat Belarus 7-1. to That was the first game they really looked dominant. But Belarus is a team that, you know, in effect, they should beat 7-1. to Canada now had a chance at gold. But first, they had to play against the U.S. As this was all going on, Trent began to let more and more people in on his secret. Both the women and men's hockey teams knew about the loony. So did Pat Quinn, the coach of the men's team. 
the little secret started getting around to other Canadians, and it eventually made its way to the great one. It was probably in the second week um, being there that I had told the Euler staff about the loony, and they in turn had told uh, uh, Gretzky about it. So when I saw Gretzky for the first time in passing, I I, I nonchalantly said, hey, I'm not sure if you've heard, but there's uh, a loony in the ice, and I, I planted it there for you guys and for good luck in skating over a little piece of Canada. And um, He was pretty cool about the conversation. He, there was other people around, but not within the earshot, and he basically gave me the signal like, yes, Trent, I know about it, but, you know, keep it quiet. And it was a hard secret to keep quiet because I wanted, uh, obviously, people from Canada to, to know about the loony. While the men may have struggled, Canada's women's team steadily approached the gold medal game. Just like many suspected, they'd be up against the Americans. Here's sports historian Eric Zweig to explain. These were really well matched. This was like, you know, these were like, you know, Fraser and Ali. These were these were the clearly the two best in their sport at the height of their powers playing for an Olympic gold medal. And and I would say uh, by 2002, the Americans in the Olympics were probably slight favorites and maybe as much because they were at home as anything else. On February 21st, 2002, the two teams met over the secret loony at Center Ice in Utah. And then the gold medal game, it was tight, it was tough. It went right down to the wire. And this was one of these games where... You know, there were, there were a ton of penalties called against the Canadian team, but it was a tough game for Canada. Canada really felt like they were playing the Americans and the referees. With just one second left in the second period, Jaina Hefford scored to give Canada a 3-1 lead. But the third period was a tense one. A late U.S. goal in the third period meant the Americans were inching forward towards Olympic gold. Canadians watching were on the edge of their seat. But Team Canada managed to hold off the Americans. And in the end, the women's hockey team won gold. An exhilarating moment, the players rushed to center ice. Ice maker Trent Evans watched in the arena and his nerves began to swirl. They were over top of center ice and they were kneeling and looking at the loony, pointing at the loony and drawing attention to the loony at center. There was moments of definite nervousness that now... Uh, somebody was going to say, okay, what are the girls doing at center? And would this bring more attention to the loony? I'm talking to Andre Brin about get the girls away from center ice. We don't need to draw the attention. At the same time, Wayne Gretzky is up in the crowd and he's also on the phone trying to get the girls away from the center ice. The men's gold medal game was just a few days away. February 24th, 2002, Packed stands in Utah and millions around the world watching. The gold medal game, Canada against the U.S. And hidden, just a few centimeters under center ice, a loony frozen in time. Trent was inside the arena, on the saddle. For the men's game, I was actually driving the Zamboni, so driving over top of the loony for, for that game. I had a lot of different nerves, the fact that I was driving in the men's gold medal game, but also the nerves of, geez, we're finally here. The men are playing in the gold medal game and the loony has survived uh, through to this point. So during the men's game, I'm uh, obviously, and as well as 
Team Canada's playing it turned from nerves of this Team Canada men going to win. Trent was right to be nervous. Canada was the underdog. Eric Zweig said Team USA was favored to win. So I think, you know, playing at home in Salt Lake City against a Canadian team that that had struggled, I'm sure the Americans expected to win. I mean, I'm no, I don't imagine they expected it to be a, a walkover, but I, I think they were expecting to win in front of a home crowd. And it looked good for the U.S. team at first. It was always going to be a tight game. Nobody expected either side was going to walk away with this. And when the Americans score first, uh, midway through the first period, that, that's a big advantage for them. Nerves mounted for the Canadians. Could gold slip through their fingers once again? Or would the loonies' powers pull through? Later in the period, Mario Lemieux, he basically makes a play. Chris Pronger is sort of making a return pass to him, but Lemieux sees Korea in a better position and lets the puck go right past him to Korea, and Korea scores to tie it up for us. Uh, late-ish in the first period. By the end of the first, Canada scored again and had taken a 2-1 lead. But the U.S. men's team was ready to put up a fight. Going into the third period, Canada has a 3-2 lead. And it's tense and it's tight and it's only a one-goal lead until very late in the game when Aginla scores to to open the two-goal lead at 4-2. And suddenly, you know, you can take a bit of a breath. There's still four minutes to go, but it, it feels like we're going to win now. And then Sackick scores basically a minute and a half later, and, and it's 5-2, and, and you know we're going to win at that point. Team Canada would end up victorious, beating the U.S. team 5-2. I remember, you you know, you could hear horns honking with the cars celebrating out on the street. Canada's 50-year drought was over. Finally, the team earned the top spot at the podium. For Trent, the magic of the loonies seemed to work, but now came the moment of truth, the big reveal. I had a water, hot water bottle in hand and a screwdriver, um, so totally prepared to uh, take the loonie out after the men's game. We get to center ice and uh, quickly, like I say, with the, the hot water, I melt the ice above the loony, and you could see the paint disperse that was over top of the loony. And then with the screwdriver, I picked the um, the loony out. and It was a pretty cool moment to think that, okay, I finally were here. I've got the loony out. It was good luck and pretty cool to see the success. Trent took the loony out of the ice and handed it to the assistant executive director, Kevin Lowe. He looked at it and we took a few pictures and uh, then he gave it back to me and he said, Trent, this is too good a story. You've got to give it to, to Gretzky yourself. He gave it back to me. No, Trent, this is uh, for you to give Gretzky. So he gave it back to me. And um, so I circled the, the building a couple of times waiting for my moment for Team Canada's dressing room door to open or that moment that uh, I could give it to Gretzky. The moment arrived and Trent handed over the coin. That moment in the dressing room was uh, pretty special and, and captured on, on video as I presented the loony to, to Gretzky as Kevin Lowe had suggested I should. Uh, you can see myself just giggling and overjoyed with excitement uh, about the presentation of the loony to Gretzky. It was a very cool moment. So I wondered, what happened to the loony once it was out of Gretzky's hands? 
While it usually would serve as pocket change for vending machine treats, this one seemed priceless. This is where Phil Pritchard comes in. I grew up, like most Canadian kids, uh, playing road hockey, playing ice hockey, dreaming of playing in the NHL, and actually went to school for sports administration and ended up at the Hockey Hall of Fame in, in 1988. So uh, became the curator and got involved with not only local events, but national events and international events. Phil was at the 2002 Olympics collecting artifacts that would be put on display at the Hockey Hall of Fame. The night of the gold medal win, he was in Team Canada's dressing room. Basically going to player and player, talking to them, explaining to them what we were doing, if they could give us anything from the games that we could put on display, whether it was the uh, a player's stick or his skate, or I remember getting Mary Lemieux's skate mat, and I we I got Mary Lemieux's flowers that they got because every Olympian gets gold, gets flowers as well. So we have them, and we got jerseys. And a photographer tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, you're needed for a photo op over here." And I said, "Why?" He goes, "You got to come over with with Wayne Gretzky." So I went over and stood with Wayne and we shook one another's hand and it was a photo op and he had put something in my hand and I, I didn't know what it was at the time. And then he leaned over to me and he said, your country's counting on you. Don't spend it on a pop machine on the way home. And then I, I looked in my hand and there was a loony there and he started explaining the whole story and all the photographers and the media kind of started picking up on the story at that time. And here I have this, 1987 Canadian loony in my hand and you hearing that they buried it in the ice and what the uh, ice guys did at the beginning of it. I, at the time, I didn't know Trent had did that. I learned afterwards about that. And so here I am in the dressing room collecting artifacts for the display at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And the best artifact I had was in the palm of my hands. Hearing the story had Phil in shock. It was it was just surreal, I guess, would be the best word, because here's Canada just won gold for the first time, as we said, since 1952. They're Olympic champions. They're all celebrating in the dressing room. And you start hearing this story about how the loony brought them luck, not only the men's game, but the women's team as well, because they had won also. Uh, they had played beforehand. I, mean, I think my flight was uh, Salt Lake City, Chicago, Chicago, Toronto. And I just held it the whole time in my hand. I had this little bag. I don't want to say it was a, a paper bag, but it was very similar to that. And I never let it go. And I think for me personally, to have this loony in my hand and not let it go. So I got back to, uh, back to Canada to the Hockey Hall of Fame where we put it on display. But as the travels went from Salt Lake City back... You began to hear more and more of the stories and, and who knew and how it happened and everything. And it, it became kind of like a Canadian legend instantly. You can see that legend at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. The exhibit featuring the 1987 Looney was officially unveiled this morning. This is the coin that was planted just below center ice at the E Center in Utah, where Canada's men's and women's hockey teams won Olympic gold. The 1987 coin has three dents on the side with the loon. Dents that happened when Trent drilled into the ice to check if it was still there. 
But I had wondered, what happened after the loony was safe and on display? I reached out to the Royal Canadian Mint, which produces Canada's coins. I spoke with Alex Reeves, the Senior Manager of Public Affairs. Canada was was basically uh, was you know pulled over by this this fact and this legendary talisman that was uh, that was created overnight and uh, that you know became a focus of Canadian pride that we could leverage for future games and the Mint decided that uh, you know wouldn't it be great to uh, to create a special loony for the next games and and so on and. The legend of the Lucky Looney really took flight when we started issuing special Lucky Looney circulation coins in, uh, in 2004. The first official Lucky Looney released by the Mint was simple. The Robert Ralph Carmichael design of the common loon on a lake with an island in the background. And in the space at the top of the coin, there was the Canadian Olympic logo. Alex told me as the years went on, different designs were created of the Lucky Looney. We switched to dynamic illustrations of the loon. And, I, I, you know, the point of that was to really kind of uh, reflect the uh, enthusiasm of Canadians, the athleticism of the, uh, of the team members that were going to each games, uh, Olympic and Paralympic. So, so we have different iterations of, of the loon taking uh, flight on uh, the rest of those coins. And uh, they always included the Canadian Olympic logo. But for 2016, we added side by side the Canadian Paralympic logo as well. So it was a nice kind of uh, uh, juncture uh, to, uh, to celebrate and represent all of the athletes that Canada was sending to those games. In 2016, the Mint stopped producing the Olympic Lucky Looney. We, uh, we last produced uh, a Lucky Looney for uh, the Rio Games in 2016. And by then, over 53 million of these coins had been uh, put into circulation. So we decided, well, there's certainly more than enough to go around for every man, woman and child in, uh, in Canada and have since turned our attention to other commemorations on a, on a $1 coin. You know, even the Toronto Maple Leafs <laughs> back in uh, back in 2017, and uh, the women's right to vote in 2016. We've kind of gone in a new direction in terms of what we can write, commemorate on a one dollar coin. But we've, you know, we've really, you know, we. It's a funny way of saying it, but we really papered the country <laughs> with <laughs> with these lucky loony coins uh, since 2016. There are approximately 53 million Lucky Loonies in circulation. So I wondered, how easy is it to find one in your change? I I think it's harder to find it in your change because I think most people have kept their Lucky Loonies and hung on to them. Um, I I don't see a whole lot in in circulation. You you can come across uh, them from time to time. But what's, what's really flattering is that Canadians seem to have held on to this this notion and this this tradition that they they value, and I'm sure those those lucky loonies are, are held tight in the hands of Canadians when they're uh, they're watching uh, <laughs> the next Olympic or Paralympic games. So so they're they're out there, but I think they're they're uh, they're being hung on to very well. So I wondered, will the mint ever bring the lucky loony back into circulation? We don't have current plans for a new Lucky Looney, but you can never say never when it comes to uh, commemorative circulation coins. The, the possibility is there, uh, although right now it's not in our in our current plans.
It's been nearly 20 years since the lore of the loonie captivated Canadians. And loonies were buried in the foundations of facilities built for the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. But loonies don't just hold power at the Olympics. The lore has spread to other sports as well. In the 2019 Raptors championship run, it was revealed that a loonie was hidden under center court before game six against the Bucks. And it brought them luck that night when Kawhi Leonard led Toronto to the first NBA Finals in the franchise's history. There it is. Hello, lucky loony. And we've seen the loony pop up in other sports as well. Sports historian Eric Zweig remembers one example in particular. There's a story of, of the Pan Am Games in Toronto in uh, 2015. And the, the baseball tournament was played in Ajax, which is just outside Toronto. And there's a guy named Stubby Clapp, who had been a major leaguer briefly, a longtime minor leaguer, had played for Canada's team for years, was now a coach with the team. And he, so Canada actually beat the United States in the gold medal game in extra innings on a kind of fluke play, a, a, an error on a pickoff throw by the American pitcher that let two Canadian base runners score and win the game in extra innings. And, and Stubby Clapp said after the game that he had, he had buried a, a loony in the, infield and he dug it up and sort of proudly showed it off after the game but he also admitted that he had he had buried loonies in the infield in in tournaments around the world and you know it didn't always bother to go back and get them when canada hadn't won but it, it worked out on home field in 2015 lady luck is fickle and the loonies power sometimes works but other times it doesn't so do people believe the loony in fact helped motivate both the men's and women's hockey teams to win double gold in 2002? I mean, we won two gold medals in hockey that we were probably underdogs. So, you know, maybe that made the difference. I, I, I imagine it was more the, uh, the that, you know, the, the, the ethos of Canadian hockey players. I mean, the game means more to Canada than, than it does to anybody else. There's no getting around that. And I'm sure, you know, <laughs> the players, you know, dug deep and all that, all those sports cliches. But, you know, it couldn't hurt. I mean, we won those two gold medals and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a great story. I'm not going to say it didn't help. After the 2002 Winter Games, Trent Evans went back home feeling like he did his part to represent Canada. He wasn't asked back to be an ice maker at the Olympics again, though. But the memories from those games are still very much present. There is even a book written recounting the events, A Looney for Luck by Roy McGregor. And it's a story that Trent still talks about 19 years later. It's just really cool to see what's happened around the Looney. And it's it's far beyond hockey, which I think uh, as years go on, I'm looking forward to hearing other stories. The story of uh, the Looney being placed you know, here we are in 2021, and and I'm still talking about the story. So, and the only reason really I'm talking about the story is because the loony has has kept showing up in in specific or other areas, basketball, golf, tennis. So, very cool part of the story. It's a, a family story, I would say, that generations, my kids, uh, can tell their kids, and it's an incredibly proud story. It's cool to think that, you know, if this is a legendary story, that it's part of Olympic history and part of sport and part of 
you know, every Canadian uh, to think that we've got our own, uh, call it bucky charm or rabbit's foot, if you will, that it's it's actually part of our currency and it, it it's pretty cool. While the loonie that started it all is at the Hockey Hall of Fame, there's still a chance the lore of the loonie will work for you. So the next time you buy a coffee, look at your change a little closer. If you see a loonie, you may be in luck. Thank you for listening. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Eric Avella, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Thanks to Stephanie D'Souza for editing assistance. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. A thanks also goes out to Eric Zweig for his contributions to this episode, as well as Alana Rizza for help chasing. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can reach out to me personally. We are always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. See you next time.